Hey, I'm Carlos Frias. This is Sundial. Carl Just has been capturing Miami through his camera lens for more than 30 years. He's been on the front lines of South Florida's history, photographing major moments that shaped and changed us. Hurricane Andrew in 1992, the Black Lives Matter protests. And he uses his personal photo studio in Little Haiti as a public space to host insightful conversations on topics that matter to our community. Carl comes from a long line of activists. His dad, Viter, is one of the founders of Little Haiti, even coined the name. Big shoes to fill, but Carl continues the tradition. Uh, he's opening up his studio tomorrow and Saturday, leading up to Martin Luther King Jr. Day, hosting a series of public events to invite discussion. Carl's working with FIU to bring in some big names, like columnist Leonard Pitts, and a curator with the Smithsonian Museum of African American History. And they'll tackle, they'll tackle big topics, Think systemic racism and the inequities in the Miami's black neighborhoods to how climate change affects these communities disproportionately. Historian Rebecca Friedman with FIU co-directed the project, and they're both in the studio today with us. Welcome, Carl and Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. So uh, you guys are, are putting your arms around a lot this weekend. This is a, uh, a lot of folks will take the Martin Luther King Jr. weekend off. You guys are... Uh, putting it on, so to speak. You guys are really taking it on. Why was it important for you guys to have these, personally important to you, to have to have these conversations? Um, well, first I think um, climate change, social justice, both of these things, they, they bear a scar. It bears a scar on those who follow the next generation. Mm-hmm. And I think in order to beginning to begin to heal, I think we can't put deeds and words underneath the rug. Mm. They can't be swept away. So bringing these conversations about trauma and creating in the space of trauma, I think it's an important conversation to have. That's the first night. And then the second night, we'll talk about you know, uh, the history about cemeteries and black cemeteries and, and, and the injustice that's been done in life and in death. Okay. Let, let's take them uh, uh, kind of one at a time here because I, I Friday night you guys are really talking about the roles of artists and journalists mm-hmm. in the climate crisis and covering it. So hurricanes and earthquakes, which Haiti has had to deal with both of them. <clears throat> and obviously the Haitian diaspora here in Miami feels it, you know, like that old saying when Latin America gets a cold, you know, Miami sneezes, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's very much true with the Caribbean, I think. Um, so t- talk to me about Friday. What, when you talk about um, the roles that artists and journalists can play in the climate crisis, what do you mean? Well, I mean, um, uh, Lionel Milton be ta- will be talking about the work he created after Katrina. Tell us about Lionel. Who's his? Lionel is, a, is a, an artist based in New Orleans, a very successful artist. Mm-hmm. And... He has, like most artists living through BLM, the summer of 2020 and through uh, COVID, and he has now pivoted his work into speaking, uh, speaking straight to power, people of power and places of power, and doing it in a way that's very unique. Mm-hmm. Is he's entertaining you and informing at the same time. And what do you mean? How, do, how does he do that? Uh, he he used these visual metaphors and and symbolism and 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 cues that that at first you, you know 
you, you're completely engaged and, and blown away by the aesthetics. And then you begin to understand that that behind those beautiful you know um, breast strokes, there's a message. And and the the uh, Rebecca, tell me a little bit about why why it was important because you um, tell me about your position with FIU with the Wolfsonian Museum. Sure. Um, so I direct something called the Wolfsonian Public Humanities Lab at FIU, which <clears throat> essentially is um, my job is to leverage the resources of the university and work with the community around culture and arts. And one of the big projects that we have going, which is funded by the Mellon Foundation, uh, is called Commons for Justice, Race, Risk, and Resilience. You guys recently got a big grant from them to, to, to talk about these dish issues directly, right? Yeah, $4.5 million. Um, and the, the work that we do with Carl is essentially stems from that project. And the Mellon Foundation is very interested in using art and culture to think about kind of issues of social justice, of racism, and so forth, and healing communities. So the whole project, uh, we work with different grassroots organizations throughout Miami and also artists. And so the reason why it's important this weekend to bring in artists, also, you know, folks from, well, Joanne Hippolyte from D.C. and the African American History Museum is to have those conversations take place here in Miami and think about the relationship between climate justice, racism, gentrification, and how artists can work together to try and heal communities. What does it mean to bring art into the conversation? Now, why is this issue something that's close to your heart why what did it per, did it, how did it personally sure. affect you how did it personally bring you into the conversation i mean i personally i feel incredibly privileged to be in the position that i'm in at fiu i was trained as a russian historian so i spent the first 15 years of my career being a kind of you know sorry colleagues but a kind of state academic where i did everything i was supposed to do i wrote my books i went to my conferences and the conversations were about russia Russian culture primarily, which is, of course, incredibly interesting, but the fact that over the past five years I've been able to shift gears and we have this uh, public humanities lab at the university, which really allows for, I hope, harnessing some of the skills that I learned in the other arena to think about things that are more immediate, at least to me, that matter and are close to my heart, like issues of, of anti-racism, social justice, and so forth. So I love it. Yeah, Carl, Carl, what did it mean to have someone in that position, really, who who represents FIU, a person who can who can bring money, who can bring four and a mm-hmm. half million dollars, which is, <laughs> I believe, what the, the grant is, to, to, uh, to these topics that are very much Miami, you know, the issues of inequity uh, in, and racism in Miami and like trying to address, like you know, like you said, climate change and how climate change specifically affects communities uh, of color. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's very important that, you know, that anything that we're trying to overcome, that you need to do it in, with some type of alliance with, with, with people who have common ground. Mm-hmm. And we, of course, you need resources to do that. Um, one of the things, you know, having been working for the Herald for 30 years, mm-hmm. I, I, I've spent most of my life recording and, and, and more in, a, in a, a reacting mode. I mean, I'll go see it, write the first draft in history. I don't use a pen, but I do use my camera. Sometimes I use both. Right. Um, and, and that gave me a, a, certain amount, a, a certain privilege, but at the same time a certain amount of, of 
I was a responsibility, right? Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. people, my camera became my passport. <laughs> oh yeah, you know. So yep. when I and as as your pen for years and a in a piece of paper was your passport. It gets you into places that other places, places right. that other people don't get a chance <clears throat> to see or go. And I think it's very important that you know that we we don't operate insular as an insular you know community mm-hmm. that what when 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 someone coughs in Miami someone's catching a cold somewhere around the world right right, right? um and and for me moving forward my work is all about trying to find common ground right i'm tired of seeing miami and living miami as a cul-de-sac right i've seen what's ha- what happens when we build walls around our communities and label people in a, in a specific you know put them in a specific box that box usually blows up and burns, and it and it burns everything else around it. Right, and and one of the speakers that you guys will have is uh, Leonard Pitts Jr., who uh, who he's often talked about Miami as the city of the future. What does that mean? The city meaning that the mm-hmm. the issues that we deal with in Miami, the cultures, the languages, the the ways where cultures meet and clash and sometimes weave together, uh, is representative of what's coming for America and what mm-hmm. you know what happens. At, the discussions that happen and he's and he's going to be speaking uh at, at both, both events friday and saturday yes on saturday on friday he's mostly going to be speaking about trauma mm. and he's going he's going to recite his piece that won the pulitzer after 9-11 oh wow that's that's a, power, he wrote a powerful essay and yeah. we should say that that leonard is a it was a past sundial guest and if you look in our podcast <laughs> yes you will find uh him talking about that piece uh specifically yeah so i'm honored to have him and engage with him and also with uh, Lionel, Lionel's been talking about uh, Katrina, and and you know uh, New Orleans is, is very similar to Miami. Mm. Anybody who's traveled to New Orleans has a strong uh, francophone identity, a strong Haitian history, mm-hmm. um, deeply embedded in Creolism, right. and also um, a delicate a delicate environment being right course. right up against the ocean. Yeah. Of course, and and it's in the forefront of climate changes as Miami is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm trying to find where there's some intersectionality between problems and solutions. What let me ask you what do you think being a journalist yourself for for so many years what do you think your role is when these disasters happen both both the natural and the, and the man-made ones uh you know uh, how do, how do you try to use your skill to to punctuate what's happening? No, I think you know, we have to peel that onion, right? Um, you know, a lot of times um, I investigate with my camera. Uh, I, I, yes, I, for me, it's a little bit more different. It's slightly different because I listen to what they're telling me, but I watch what they do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Then those are not always the same thing. They're not always, <laughs> you know, they're not always the same thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm perched and I'm listening with with my eyes when I'm watching with my ears. Right. Right? So it's a, it's a skill set that I've learned throughout the course of, you know, my career. And I'm very grateful to have um, my Miami Herald family, which you, I will consider you a part of my family. Always, always. always. Tapping my chest, Harold, for life. But you're also <laughs> now part of my WLRN family. South, you know what? We're yeah. a South Florida family yeah. down here. Really and I urge sense. everyone to support both Miami Herald and WRN because I do it because you're important and we're gonna bring here. we're gonna bring you back on pledge week <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I always look uh, that's not a problem um, but I do believe that um, 
we have to operate in the darkest places. The candle does have power. Oof, yep. Rebecca, you've been yeah. here for 20 years. Yeah, I have. So, I mean, talk to me a little bit about your experience with these natural disasters that we've lived through, but also how you've seen them affect the communities that you're now focusing it to helping to focus attention on. Yeah, one of the interesting things about the work we've been doing uh, in regards to climate gentrification and climate change is talking to a lot of people in various communities, whether it's Alapata, Homestead, Little Haiti, Overtown, etc., is the kind of common ground, mm-hmm. of course, that, that folks in each of these communities is expressing, you know, the ways in which <clears throat> as as the climate as things get warmer, as the seas rise, that folks are forced out of their neighborhoods so that people with more resources, right, take their spots. And that's happening in all of these kind of underserved, primarily black and brown neighborhoods. So one thing that we're able to do from, you know, I think like, what is the university's role in these issues? What right. can we do to help, right? right. Or, or And <clears throat> a lot of what we talk about is not just resources, not just money, although that too, but also, you know, that a university has a huge infrastructure. We can also teach our students to be informed citizens. We can bring them with us and so they can see the work that we do and then maybe they'll grow up to become a Carl Juice or whoever and, you know, and, and to go ahead and continue on working to make the community a stronger, better place. I don't know if that quite answers your question, but I think all the time about um, like what I'm doing in the room. <laughs> right. And and that that's a big challenge, right? Because we hear the phrase climate gentrification, mm-hmm. and that's what you mean. Is you're that talking is, about yeah. people who rent in areas who uh, yeah, as I, that 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 are then being purchased and bought by people who want to live on quote unquote higher ground, right? Liter- physically, literally, literally higher mm-hmm. ground. And so, what is what is the university's role in that, and how do you mm-hmm. try to bring that in? How do you try to yeah. go from discussion to actual change? It's a great question. I don't have an absolute <laughs> fast answer to that. That's the big one. But yeah. yeah, that's the big question. I mean, one thing I can say that this Mellon Foundation grant has allowed is it's not my field of expertise, but I have colleagues on the grant who are cultural geographers, who are political scientists, who are you know they have architects, they have skill sets that allow them to go into communities to talk to the communities write reports right and then those reports can be given to our politicians and so forth so there's a kind or to advocacy people working in grassroots advocacy so it's you know it's a kind of whole system of trying to get the information out there and having leveraging the expertise of colleagues to allow that to happen so whether it's housing you know the kinds of things you're saying about uh you know, the ways in which people are being forced out of their homes and they have nowhere to live, they can't afford it, and so forth. That the, the kind of information that's being gathered is meant to be one step in the chain. I, I'm curious, Carl, because you, you've you lived that. You've lived, you live in mm-hmm. a community you both are raised in and live in a community where that, that where that's seen. Tell me about how you've seen Little Haiti deal with those issues over the years. Well, Little Haiti has contracted um, when I was in high school, Little Haiti went as far south as 36th Street. Right. It used to. Now right. we call it Little River, and uh, right. Nadege Green, right. a, a good yeah. friend of ours, also says the the, yeah. the transition is complete. Like right. they have they have effectively <laughs> stripped it from from. Little of course, Haiti. and you know, um, we're talking about relocating people. Imagine, and we'll get into this later on. You know, it's gentrification <laughs> in terms of uh, climate change, but there's been always a gentrification in terms of death hmm. 
and which is which is what you guys are taking mm-hmm. up in the second part. Uh, right. But that that kind of leads me into it. When you talk about gentrification of death, specifically, you are talking the next day, Saturday, uh, about a uh, kind of previewing a project that you guys are working on that's coming later this year. Which the center of it is, as I understand it. Uh, bringing back, uh, preserving uh, the Lincoln Memorial Park, which is a historically black cemetery. So tell me about how, when you say something like how gentrification affects (laughs) death, tell me about Lincoln Memorial Park and how, you know, the black and white issue uh, appears. It's the same thing. Yeah. You literally are taking, the only unfortunate thing is the dead cannot speak, so they think. But What's the story of of the cemetery? Give oh, us the background. Background is number one. Where is it? It's Brownsville. It's in right? Brownsville. Brownsville. Okay. It's right on Forty Sixth Street and probably the thirty one hundred block. Um, back in twenty nineteen, the Coral Gables Museum came to me. Um, they came to me in about June or May, mm-hmm. and they said, "Hey, we're doing this project. We want to kind of like record the cemetery, and you know, it's kind of nice. It's black and." And you know it's it's dilapidated, it's it's in in, in ill repair, right, right. dilapidated, and and there's vegetation overgrown uh, that's being overgrown all over the the I think 4.5 acre, um, I think it's probably more than that. Um, this large parcel of land, right? And um, we want you to work on this project. And and, I, and what was the give us the the the, the importance of that cemetery right it's oh it's, to it's cora where, gables no no to, to miami like it's where it's where bl- like blacks li- were physically moved and buried in that area right well to make room for white to make room uh, here closer ru- closer to coral gables right the the coral, yeah and also city of miami all, all all the places where white residents were moving into the cemeteries generally the, the part of the cemetery in the back was dedicated to black folks Right, so see. they exhumed the bodies from there and moved them to to several different uh, cemeteries and they moved them to uh Lincoln Memorial. So they literally yes. evi- they oh, read, yeah. they redlined them oh, and yeah, red them from them. there and moved them to a separate area for blacks right. only. And there you have everybody from like 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 from rich to the pauper sort yeah, of thing. Like, of course. Uh, and give me give me some who are some of the folks that, that you that you'd find? You would find there. the range. You find athlete range. You'll find who is who was a athlete range was a very prominent um, politician in Miami. Okay, and she was also owned a funeral home. Um, she was an activist, an, an early black pioneer. Yeah, Miami. early black pioneer. Early, a lot of black. Because um, um, this is going back to the twenties. Yeah, twenties, thirties, twenties, thirties, nineteen twenty-three or so. Yeah, twenties, uh, early twenties, early twenties, and and but it really started taking. Um, it became one of the most beautiful black cemeteries in the South. Um, I, I want to continue on this conversation, but we're going to take a little break, and then we're going to come back and pick right up there with Carl Just, Miami Herald photographer, and Rebecca Friedman, a historian with the Wilsonian Public Humanities Lab, and they're putting on a series of conversations. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias, and we're joined by Carl Just, Miami Herald photographer, and Rebecca Friedman. Together, they're putting on a series of important conversations in Little Haiti, um, 
it's touching on everything from climate change to racism in our communities. And, uh, and you guys are bringing in some heavy hitters uh, to discuss these issues, one of which we've been talking about is the gentrification of death. Yeah. What does that mean? Specifically, the, um, uh, the, the cemetery, um, the Lincoln Park, the Lincoln Memorial Cemetery, Lincoln Memorial Park Cemetery, which is historically black. And you were starting to tell us that this was the place where, I mean, rich or poor, whether you're black, you were kind of forced into this cemetery. Mm -hmm. But I want you to paint a picture of us for us about even though this cemetery is important it's fallen into disrepair paint a picture for what it looks like for well us. It, it it was falling in, in mm. into disrepair uh-huh. then the first part i did this is a three-part project the first part i did was called the caretakers and it was the saxons that were that were responsible to to keep the doors open and and to to maintain as best they could the cemetery. Saxons being the, the caretakers. Yeah, the caretakers, cemetery. right. And then the second part is called the search. Mm. And this is where it gets really interesting. So Jesse Wooden, uh, he was, was was a Miami native who mm. moved to the Carolinas, left, you know, started a business outside of Miami, and was visiting Miami and wanted to, to find the burial site of his um, of his mother. Oh, he was never close his... to his mother. Never oh, close wow. to his mother, but he was curious. Right. So he went to Lincoln Memorial, saw this place in disrepair, purchased it. No. He yes. found, found his mother. He found his yeah. mother and bought and the, bought and bought the whole cemetery that is and amazing. has done this amazing, amazing job of cleaning it. Now, he spent hundreds of thousands, not millions of dollars to sustain the cemetery. This cemetery does not belong solely to the black community. It is our history. Right. All right. We, every resident of Day County or South Florida, need to have ownership of this place. This is for us to now, we need to become the caretakers. So, one of the reasons why I got involved in this, on, on, in terms of doing this, this project, is to bring, not only to bring the awareness of the condition and, and the beautiful uh, story from from rags to riches. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure it doesn't return back to rags. So mm-hmm. the, the project that you're working on that you'll be discussing on Saturday right. is chronicling the this cemetery from its history and how it started, going through disrepair, and now how it's reemerged. Yeah, and, and, and more importantly, you talk about how this is a pattern throughout throughout. United States, especially throughout the South. Oh, right. This is right? not just a this Miami is not issue. An, no. Yeah, it's not a Miami yeah. issue. And also... The erasure, the erasure of, of black history. Black history, and only that, the desecration of black space. Yeah. Uh, Rebecca, can I ask you a little bit, because since you represent FIU, sure. um, and you have been a partner on having these conversations, and, and have had a grant to begin to study some of these issues and how they affect black communities, mm-hmm. Miami's black communities... Talk to me about what how what your interest is in seeing a place like this preserved and brought back and, and memorialized, which is what the exhibit's gonna do. Sure. I mean one of the reasons why the exhibit is so exciting to me and why Carl's vision is inspiring for it. We haven't even talked about this yet, mm-hmm. but the project that will eventually be an exhibition in September fifteenth, twenty twenty three. 
three. Um, you guys at the little yeah. Haiti yeah. cultural Planning complex. Ahead. Oh yeah, at the little Haiti cultural complex. That it, that the exhibit itself doesn't end with the kind of violent story of the cemetery itself, where you, as we said before, where you know white bodies were exhumed. I mean, black bodies were exhumed and actually physically put into the cemetery. Um, that the story doesn't end with that violence. It doesn't end even with Jesse Wooden's cleaning up of the of the cemetery, which now is a working cemetery, which is right. kind of amazing. And Carl and his team have shot footage of that, and that'll become part of the exhibition as well. I, I want to mm-hmm. talk about that because your your photography and videography of the cemetery and uh, has been, I imagine, what what role do you think it helped play, both of you guys, what, what role do you think it helped play in bringing it back into the public consciousness about? Well, mm-hmm. thanks to the Miami Herald, we we uh, it, we printed in, in 2019 um, in advance of the opening of the show. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, when you see the images, and you listen and you watch the video, you forget about color. Because hmm. you and I both, we have buried the people that we have loved. Mm-hmm. Yes, we have. We have, and we have spoken about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is the last gesture of respect. Hmm. And and you did something really interesting is when you when you documented it, you... You shot it in black and white, which I thought was an interesting, which was a, a, definitely a choice, and I'm, and I, and it, and it's impactful. Tell me about why you did that, and I didn't. Want, I wanted to remove all. I wanted to remove all, all, all. It's not necessarily a gimmick. All the hues that may distract you from listening to the context in which I was trying to retell, mm-hmm. and. And when you shoot in black and white, you get to concentrate on the character. The piece has a personality. Mm-hmm. And and you get to focus on what's being said more than what you're seeing. And there's this beautiful moment. You guys created a video uh, mm-hmm. that, where can folks see that video? Oh, you go to the Miami Herald website, of yeah, course. You go to the Miami Herald website <laughs> and, of you course. S- and you search for? Well, you search for caretakers. Caretakers. Um, if you want to see it behind the paywall, it's on YouTube. But I would prefer that you see it behind the paywall. Right. Let's get let's get <laughs> folks paid. Let's, yeah, get, let's folks get people paid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And... and um, it's beautiful. There's uh, the video is narrated uh, by Leonard Pitts. Mm-hmm. It's a great story behind that. He, uh, t- what is it? <laughs> I was sitting in a meeting, and um, that's it's not starting like a great story. I'm oh, kidding. it's a great, <laughs> it's a great story. All right, come on, get better. And and, and we are discussing. Okay, two things happened. Um, Coral Gables reached out to me, and I said this would be a good opportunity to bring the story to our to a larger. To a larger, um, to a larger audience, mm-hmm. I, I went to the Herald, and I told you they came. They spoke to me in June. The show was in August. Wow, that is not a lot of time. Not a lot of time, and um, and and to the credit of the Miami Herald, and 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 this is what I love about having a home, a hometown paper, mm-hmm. because they really believed, and trusted my judgment. Shout out to Rick Hirsch. That's right. Who it is? The, and the former managing editor. Of the that's Miami right. Um, and um, we 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 had a meeting, and 
and I was trying to explain as how do we tell the story in a way that that has a voice mm-hmm. and within two seconds I said has to be Leonard Pitts everybody on the table like Leonard Pitts he's a busy guy I said no one else can do it but him and this is his wheelhouse he he gets it he gets it and so during the process of 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 shooting and recording and and documenting this stuff and taking notes, I would share it with Leonard. And he came down to Miami and was able to not feel, touch, see with his own eyes. And I, you know, Leonard is an amazing writer, not because of what is written, but what is felt. And and he made he wrote uh, he an wrote incredible the, essay an incredible essay on the, fire and, and you guys took excerpts of it to to narrate oh yeah the video and and but the good part is we're doing another story in the Herald called the search um, and a young writer by the name of Isaiah Smalls will be writing this piece I want to pick up right there when uh, we're going to take a little break and we're going to come back with. Carl Just, who's a Miami Herald photographer, and Rebecca Friedman, who's a historian with FIU, and they're hosting a series of conversations in Little Haiti this weekend. We'll be right back with them. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias, and we're joined by Carl Just, who's a Miami Herald photographer, and Rebecca Friedman, who's a historian with FIU, and together they are sponsoring a series of public conversations this weekend in Little Haiti at the IPC Art Space in Little Haiti, uh, January 13th and 14th, uh, talking about some of these issues that um, that affect specifically some of Miami's black communities. And one of them we've been talking about is the, the historically black cemetery. And we've you, you, Carl, have talked about, have the photography and videos that you've done to kind of show its progress. But now you said there's a second step. There is a second yeah. step that, that you want to move that further along. What, what is that a little bit? Um, it's called a search. The, uh, the, the constant, it's about, it's about, um, Jesse Wooden's search for his, for his mother and the transformation, that one act. And people come to search for their loved ones all the time. Right, and and Jesse Jesse Wooden is the gentleman it's, who came. He came. Owner. He yeah. came searching for his mom, mom at the cemetery, and then mm-hmm. purchased it and bought the cemetery. Mm-hmm. Out, okay, right. and 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 it was not a business decision. It was a decision, in not only for himself but for a community. And one of the things, I, I will not be successful in retelling this story, if all you see is a black man. Hmm. I, I'm curious for you guys. You know, this is a very personal project, so I'm always interested because this is such a Miami story. I'm interested in your Miami credentials. So let's <laughs> not, because I know Carl. We're going to come back to you, but Rebecca, tell me, give us your Miami credentials. What are your? Uh, when did you come down here? And what sure. what made you interested uh, to to continue down into this into this path? Sure, I came here in 2000 for my job at FIU. So I'm not a native of Miami, but I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere. Where are you from originally? I grew up in Jersey. And All then right. we'll I forgive spent it. <laughs> exit 13B. Okay? All right. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> um, and then I spent about 15 years in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And Again. what is it about Miami that, that made you want to stay 20 years? 20 years, I think you can almost call yourself a local. I think, I think so. Yeah. I think so. Um, 
<clears throat> well, my job for one thing, mm -hmm. um, uh, and then just over time it becomes home, right? So yeah. I had my kids here, uh, work here, so it's it's become home. But the work that we've been do doing more recently with public humanity stuff at the university has engaged me and well, me personally with the community. So I've, through that work, I've gotten to meet a tremendous number of kind of beautiful people who lead all kinds of cultural. Uh, and art organizations across Miami. So for me, it's been uh, a really fantastic trip. And, you know, because I have the vantage point of, of working with a lot of folks across different neighborhoods, you know, that's a kind of position where I get to see and can articulate connections of some of the things that are going on. Mm -hmm. How did it become personal for you? Like when you were doing a, you were in a field that was very academic, you were focused on, on Russian history, right? Yeah. And how did it, what happened? What was the thing that moved you enough to say like this, that you felt connected? Well, I mean, in a way I'd answer that question backwards, which is mm. to say I always found it not quite meaningful enough, mm. right? So my goal for a long time was to work um, in a in a field where I wouldn't make the world a worse place, right? That was always like the <laughs> goal, like the position "do no harm, first do no harm." Yeah, and I feel like I've I've succeeded there. I've okay. never made the world a worse place. Oh well, that's, that's through a great my job. <laughs> but now you're you definitely know. making it a better one. Trying, and I think just the kind of the 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 on the ground engagement that I get to do now and talk to so many incredible people, being able to like I said, bring some of the resources to communities is it's just super meaningful. I wake up every day loving my job, yeah. and also to have those students there, you know that they are at because my you bring you bring students yeah. into this, and that's yeah. such an important thing that it doesn't exist in a vacuum. You no. start to bring in other generations and other and wider. Uh, how do you bring in the students? Yeah, so well, I'm in the Department of History, so we have a public history program. Okay. Okay, so we train graduate students in public history, which essentially has to do with a lot of kind of community-engaged scholarship, historic preservation, um, the kind of work that Carl and I are doing and we're doing, you know, more broadly in the community. So those students become can become part of the project. So this project that we're doing with Carl um, involves some archival looking through the archives of Lincoln Memorial Park Cemetery, which Jesse Wooden owns. It's a tremendous archive of material. Wow, he owns that, the archive as yeah. well as that. It's a fantastic. A and it's, you know, it's in some disrepair. So it allows an opportunity for the university to help right, to preserve it, to make it available for research, to get students involved in reading and thinking through what is the relationship between a piece of paper that has names on it with numbers of how much cemetery plots are mm. worth, and how do you put that in a broader picture? What does that teach us about this community? Not to mention, like, what is the archive, and what does it mean that the archive is in disrepair, period? That tells us something from the get-go right. about ways in which certain histories are disrespected. It, it, I, I'm thinking about the, the Black Archives yeah. in Miami and, and working with those folks. I imagine that's, that's part of, of tying those pieces together. Absolutely. Uh, Carl, now, this is obviously a subject that's, that's very close to you because you're— I mean, your dad, your mom and dad were mm -hmm. early activists, and your dad f coined the term Little Haiti. He's credited uh, with coming up with the name. Your, your dad's name is on streets in Little Haiti. Yes, How is. did that affect you growing up, seeing that your, like, that your dad was so involved in the community, and that must have made you feel like the community is a, Miami's a family member. Little Haiti's a family member. Yeah, I, I think what brings people Miami, what makes Miami such so magical is that you have people who are committed. Mm. Just look around this table. Yeah. 
And when you have this this alchemy, this this blending of science and magic and love and passion, um, great things can happen. I hear music. When you talk, I hear music. Oh, well. We all do. Um, and great things can happen. And and you know, you and I know that newspaper is a miracle. It's a daily miracle, right? Yeah. How did that happen? How, how that does happen it happen every day? Um, this radio show is a daily miracle. You know, um, what makes it magical is that you can't really plan your life, but you can prepare for life. Mm. And I think what my dad did, and what I what I want to continue, is to keep preparing, but preparing for the afterlife. Hmm. Which is part of the the topic of what you guys are going to be discussing Saturday, yeah. right? And there's this the top. No, so so kind of um, put it into context for me. You you talk about the idea of death transitions, in other right? Words, and and the and the the um, the symbolism around them, the different ceremony around them. Right. Talk talk to me about that a little bit. And what do you guys what do you guys what conversations do you want to spark? Oh, this is going to be amazing. Like I said, this is not going to be where you come and cry. And, and, and leave as if you've, you've lost. You're going to come to this exhibit and felt reborn. Mm-hmm. We're going to celebrate uh, the transition, transitioning in, in four, different met- four different modes. Native American, Haitian, Latin American, and African American. And all those, all those intersectionalities, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to dance. We're going to sing. We're going to cry. We're going to remember, we're going to honor, but most of all, we're going to live. Hmm. And the idea, what's, it pivots on two things. Um, the question, what do we leave behind and what can we look for forward? Hmm. And we're going to have a parlor, hopefully, uh, we're planning for it that people can leave messages. I'm going to invite you. I'm there. And I'm going to I'm going to leave a message for my parents and for my two brothers mm. and for my uncle. Mm. And we're going to record those messages. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be part of an archive. Oh, how beautiful. Right? And then we're going to have uh we're building these shelves of these skulls and we and out of the out of the skulls they're going to be like a plant. And people are gonna be able to put their pictures of the people that that that, that they love that have passed. A Dia de los Muertos kind yeah. of uh, yeah. kind exactly. of bringing yeah. it. So something between that and a New Orleans Second right. Line Parade, yeah. right? Exactly. Or, or a Haitian Gede. Yeah. A Haitian Gede. Yeah. Tell me about All a Haitian Gede. I don't. I'm not familiar. Oh man, it's a celebration of uh, is 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 it's celebration of, of of transformation, transform, and in terms of the the African voodoo practices mm-hmm. that. Our body remains here, but our soul climbs to another space. Mm-hmm. And, and it's honoring these traditions. Of course, yes, yeah. of course, because it's so s- similar. I mean, the the in, um, the, the Seminoles in Mississippi have certain burial practices mm-hmm. that we want to to acknowledge. We have more in common in life and death than we have. Than, you, than, than, than we could think of. But we, we have to connect. There's so much intersectionality. There's so many things that we share. I'm going to give you a perfect example. And this has probably happened to you if you live in South Florida. Mm. You're driving and someone cuts you off. 
when you get next to the car, what you what you gonna about to do? You're gonna yell at them. Let that person be your name that you love. All of a sudden, all that anger disappears. Wow, you're asking a lot for me. Uh, you're asking a lot, Carl. I'm, I'll, I'll try. I mean, if it's happened to you, I yeah, mean, that you ever pull? Come on, you, I pull live up, in South Florida. Yeah, of course, pull, it's but you pull up. I mean, it's happened to me all the time. I pull up, and it's my neighbor. I'm like, okay, I was really mad two seconds ago. Or it was an abuelita. Or an abuelita. Oh, that breaks right? my heart. It breaks your heart, I'm right? Such a terrible person. Of course, I'm mad at this abuelita. <laughs> but, but the idea is, if, if we could find a point, we can connect, even in death, especially even in transformation, death. especially mm-hmm. in death. Yeah, even in 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 the act of trans and transforming from this life to the other, whatever that, however you define it, if we can respect our death practices, we will respect our living practices. Mm-hmm. I could promise you that. Rebecca, I'm curious, how has this discussion, uh, has, it made it, has it made you consider your own experiences with life and death and transition? And like how your cult, like how your particular background perceive them and what have you. I mean, I, I, I'm Jewish and I grew up in an incredibly secular, if not atheist household. Um, and so these are questions that I've thought of, of course, as we all have my whole life, where, where do I stand vis-a-vis this? How do I feel? What do I think? And, you know, with age, that kind of, um, uh, confidence in what you what you thought you knew, what you thought you believed, starts to change, mm-hmm. right? Because you and open up, you talk to people, you yeah, you just open up your heart and you allow it to, other ideas to come in. Um, and so you know, the, you know, to connect that to this project is an easy leap because listening to Carl, thinking about so we've commissioned artists, for example to create expressions of this transition and that will be part of the exhibit so learning about that thinking about that talking to the artists um and just conceiving of this particular project kind of forces me to look inside myself and think about what i believe and one of the artists that um, I imagine that, that you worked with is uh, the artist uh, Lino Milton, who's going to be at, at yeah. uh, yes. both discussions Friday right. and Saturday at uh, at the IPC. Edouard de Valcaille. Right. Mm-hmm. We we also wanted to make sure that we had artists that are indigenous to their practice. Right. So we had Native American mm-hmm. artists. We have Latinx or Latino Latina. Uh, indigenous Colombians. In, indigenous Colombians, mm-hmm. and we have also you know, um, Haitian artists, mm-hmm. but but really have those practices become conversations. Yeah. As you saw these different kind of, these kind of death transition uh, rituals, yeah. was there anything that struck each one of you, Rebecca, that about similarities, things that you saw in common or something that, that you take away as like, you know, this is something that I see kind of mm-hmm. cross-culturally? I mean, I think probably the most obvious um, thing that one sees or that I see is the way in which death is not the end, mm. right? That that's not the end point. And what comes after, what comes beyond the threshold is, you know, a question mark personally for me. And that each of these cultures, each of the artistic r- expressions also to some degree don't provide certainty or anything mm-hmm. definitive. But there is a way in which the kind of amorphousness of it for me is kind of meaningful and gives hope so the the kind of hope that is at the end of the narrative of the exhibit and also at the end of my answer to your question is what to me is most inspiring 
the hope at it. Yeah. What about for you, Carl? I mean, you saw lots of different slices of the apple, so to speak, different people's yeah. traditions. Well, um, for me, um, in the in my practice, having covering having covered um, uh, natural disasters and conflict, um, it, it, uh, I often had to pray. Yeah. With those who are dying. Mm. Yeah. Who didn't know a word I was saying. Mm-hmm. But I could not let them die alone. Yeah. And that hits hard. No one should come to in this world alone and no one should leave this world alone. Yeah. So if I want to make changes, if I want to connect with people, then it's up to me to be that source of change. And this is what this project mm-hmm. is about. It's really, it's really discussing some things that sometimes uh, are not discussed enough. Mm-hmm. enough. Issues, these issues of transition, right? Transition of of life, mm-hmm. of death, of uh, like you were saying, um, and how that applies to um, you know race, climate, race and climate, all these things of transition from one to the other. And That's you guys right. are getting into a lot of those topics. Right. Bring get your flowers now. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. And 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 it's a practice that I, I try to do certain days. I do it very well. I get mad. I get angry. People disappoint me. But I know the value of of memory. Mm-hmm. I know the value of the present. And I hope the memory and the present will bring value to the future. And I, I think mm-hmm. we both can agree on that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Rebecca, why why do you hope that people will come this weekend, Friday and Saturday, um, to the um, IPC Art Space in, in Little Haiti? Why why do you hope that they'll, and what do you hope that they'll take away? Well, I hope that they'll come because the conversations I think are going to. I mean, we have four heavy hitters. <laughs> yes, but tell tell us again who's who, who they are. The are. Mm-hmm. Sure, we got Carl Juice over here. Yes, ma'am. Um, we got Lionel Milton, um, artist from New Orleans. We got Leonard Pitts Jr., who everyone knows, and then we have Joanne Hippolyte, who is a curator at the African American and a American, local. And and a local. local. Oh, she's originally from Miami. Yeah, yeah. And, and she she and Haitian she and Haitian. Curated, yeah. and she, she curates the um, the African diaspora yes. uh, uh, section of the the Smithsonian. Uh, That's right, African American Museum. That's and she right. used to be the curator, chief curator at History Miami. At History Miami. Yeah, yeah. these are these are serious these people who are coming. These home. Are, yeah, yeah, they're yeah. These are people that are coming home, and just to hear the four of them talk, you know, amongst themselves is going to be a thing a thing to see. And and plus, <laughs> you know, for many people believe. The transition is going home. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. does this double play, and the exhibit that we have up on the walls is called "Coming Home." Uh, Matter of fact, yes. Tell me about that exhibit. Uh, Bill Frakes, um, he um, did a series of landscapes, and I was looking at them, and I said, "Bill, you're not photographing soil and sky." You're photographing a personality. You're photographing how how our environment is speaking to us and reminding us of, of its beauty and, its, of, and of its rage. Mm. So I started talking about him coming back home to Nebraska, how that felt like, how he had a first home and how I had to create a second home. And, and Carl, what do you hope that folks will, will come away with after coming this weekend? What do you, someone who has 
who has not really brushed up against this issue or is hearing this for the first time and says, I'm going to, I'm going to take a flyer. What do I, what do you hope that they'll come away with? I hope they have strength. Hmm. I hope it gives them strength. Cause do. one, yeah. Uh, one guarantee on this planet, we are going to leave it. Hmm. <laughs> That's for and, sure, yeah. and, and, and the span of when you enter and when you leave is called life. And I would hope that their takeaway is that they have a lot more living to do before they transform for transformation. I would just add to that. You know, I was thinking about your question before and also not to fear. Not to fear. Not to fear. Well, I hope that folks do come and do come away with some of those things. Uh, today we spoke with Carl Just. He's a Miami Herald photographer, and Rebecca Friedman. She's a historian with FIU, and together they're hosting a series of conversations on everything from climate change to racism in our communities at the IPC Art Space in Little Haiti on January 13th and January 14th. And that's sundown for Thursday, January 12th. Leslie Obaye Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our digital editor is Matea Sanchez. And Katie Munoz is our interim managing editor. Our senior news editor is Jessica Bakeman. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundial's engineer. Like that music? That is the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program too. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up next week on the program, we're joined by the writer and creator of the comedy series The Gordita Chronicles. It's the story of a young girl whose family leaves the Dominican Republic in the 1980s and moves to Hialeah. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. WLRN Public Media.